welcome back to Your Brain on Positive. All the love and support you need is residing inside of you. And we're going to make it easier to turn it on. Welcome to Your Brain on Positive. I'm Jackie Simmons, and I am your host. And today, oh my goodness, hang on. We're about to talk to my guest, Will Niels. Hey, hey, Will, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about some very important things about our brain and why we should not ignore certain signs and symptoms. To introduce my guest, you're best known for something most people don't believe, which is that Alzheimer's can be prevented and reversed. That's correct. So um, for anybody listening to this, we're going to take you into the world according to Will, based on his experience, his knowledge, and the case studies. We're also going to talk about fact-finding and myth-busting along the way. Will, you may not know this, but I used to organize walks to raise awareness for the Alzheimer's Association. And when people said, Jackie, why? Because I didn't have anyone in my family at that time dealing with any of the signs of Alzheimer's. And my attitude was, hey, it doesn't do me any good to train somebody's brain, which is what I'm known for, is training people's brains to release negative emotional history so they can create something without all that baggage. It doesn't do me any good to train somebody's brain and then for them to lose those skills to something as preventable as Alzheimer's. And that's how I got on this bandwagon. What's your story, Will? Why is this important to you? Well, I'm a primary care doctor and very preventatively minded primary care doctor. So I came through medical school and was trained in an allopathic model whereby we sort of uh, name it, blame it, and tame it. So we categorize an illness. Uh, we um, say this is the problem. And then we use pharmaceutical surgical interventions to uh, minimize the symptoms or um, modify outcomes. But the truth is, is the model never really digs down to the root cause uh, of illnesses. And that became pretty evident to me. So I was in my career much more attracted to some some different ways of doing things, you know, things that are well-based in science, uh, for example, using lifestyle, diet, exercise, stress management to treat coronary artery disease. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Lifestyle, diet, stress management, and exercise. Okay. I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Yes. Okay. Those are for coronary disease. No, that's a pretty well-known protocol. Precisely, but not implemented in the clinics. And there's a long list of reasons why that might be. Uh, but I set about in my career trying to teach patients how they can implement that and bringing that to people through the medical model. So uh, diabetes, heart disease, um, even many things can be done to prevent cancer. Uh, so the big, the, those were the top two killers. But the number three leading cause of death now is Alzheimer's disease. And if I go back to 2015, I had nothing that could really uh, powerfully impact my patients that were starting to succumb to cognitive decline, dementia, and Alzheimer's. And so when I heard uh, UCLA researcher Dale Bredesen speak about his protocols and his early success, published a series of 
I think it was eight or 10 patients that he took back from the brink of Alzheimer's disease using a protocol, brought them back to being functional, returning to work, remaining independent. I was, I was very interested. And so after some due diligence, um, I decided to get trained in his protocol. And so 2016, I started slowly implementing the protocol into my um, clinic. And that has been um, a a journey evolving uh, to where I am now, where I now fully believe that Alzheimer's disease and and dementia, A, uh, is optional, should be prevented, can be prevented. uh, And my goal is will be prevented for everybody. And uh, B, even uh, for people um, that are already in that boat, a lot can be done to improve mental function, improve quality of life. And I think what's most important is to really maintain independence. Absolutely. I am watching the not so slow decline of one of my best friends who has been losing her independence. Yeah, you know, a little at a time over the years. And now she's going to be 94 in a couple of weeks. So people were like, yeah, this is just the expectation. And I'm like, really? We can't do any better than this in this day and age than to expect that we're going to gradually lose our independence and lose our ability to make our own decisions. We can't do better than that yet. I was very excited. When you came on my podcast schedule, well, it's like, yeah, let's do better. So if somebody's like poo-pooing all of this, saying, well, there's nobody in my family that's ever had cognitive decline or dementia or Alzheimer's, I don't need to know this. What would you tell them? Well, I, I, I would say, I certainly hope that you're correct, but I wouldn't um, take that to the bank, so to speak. I wouldn't bet on that uh, because, you know, um, even for people without the dreaded ApoE4 gene, there's an 8 to 10% lifetime risk of Alzheimer's. So that's not a game of Russian roulette that I would want to play. And in any event, there are many processes that are going on in commonly in our society and people that contribute to slowing cognition and less brain performance and so forth. And these things not only input impact the brain, but they impact the entire body's health. So why wouldn't you want to do your best to take care of your health? Um, you know, Ooh, I love that question. Why wouldn't you want to do it? And the first answer that popped into my head, I don't know. I can't wait till some people start putting comments on this because the first answer that popped into my head is why wouldn't I want to do it? Because to do it, I'd have to admit that I was at risk for it. That can be scary, but that's sort of not sort of this is why uh, we're um, so driven to get this message out that it doesn't have to be scary. You know, Alzheimer's message. Yeah, it's a it's a long process with a long window of opportunity to intervene and prevent. Okay, so it's a long process with a long window of opportunity. And people will still wait for signs and not my own experience through the Teen Suicide Prevention Society is people are not just waiting for signs. They're waiting for absolute proof before they take a step that might prevent or intervene. 
Mm-hmm. Is in well, in my world of teen suicide prevention, there's a point where you've waited too long. Is there a point in your world around preventing Alzheimer's where someone you'd have to say they waited too long? Unfortunately, still yes. So there are people with very advanced Alzheimer's disease. The brain is atrophied significantly. And using our protocol, we have not been successful bringing them back to independence and fully functional uh, life. I will say this, though, uh, while we've always been very careful to explain that, still there have been many people, families, patients that endeavor uh, in the hopes to improve function. And what, what we see is that the protocol very much will improve quality of life and can can improve cognitive function. And I think the most meaningful way is we see patients employing the protocol that are much more interactive with family members, much more sociable, much less distressed. So the quality of life is very improved. That's huge. I'm quality of a relationship. As I said, I, I have a very real life experience happening with my friend and her ability to engage in a conversation is incredibly valuable to me. So that makes a lot of sense. If we're on a mission to wake up the world to the fact that this can be prevented, it's very much paralleling my mission to wake up the world to preventing suicide. And I think we both have a similar take on it. I call it being at war. War spelled with two A's as in we're all at risk. Mm -hmm. And if you could get people to accept that, okay, they accept that there's a risk. What would be their first step to mitigate that risk? Well, we recommend people uh, over the age of 45, which is a time when our brain function is peaking or has peaked, generally speaking, and uh, a time when a lot of the sort of degenerative processes that can happen in the body are, ha- are starting and you can pick them up. So at the age of 45 or older, we recommend people get a thorough evaluation. Um, we call it a cognoscopy. <laughs> Oops, sorry. A cognoscopy? Does it require the same kind of sedation as its namesake? Yes. Absolutely not. Oh, no. good. Okay. <laughs> Much less invasive than a colonoscopy. But similar to colonoscopy, name. which you're looking for early signs of colon cancer, and that test I'm a big proponent of because it has um, it's absolutely impacting the death rate from colon cancer is declining. And again, it's, it has there's a large window of opportunity. It takes 10 years for a polyp to uh, grow into a cancer. So if you can identify those and sniff them out early, you've prevented cancers. And even and so even though a small um, percentage of the population is undergoing that test, we see the death rate declining. And I, I believe that's due to this long window of opportunity. With Alzheimer's disease, you have, at least in most cases, a 20-year window where these processes begin and you can impact them along the way before, the, before that diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is made, which is really an end-stage, late-stage uh, diagnostic. Diagnosis. All right. I'm going to pause you just long enough to go. I know that I can go to my primary care physician and request to have a colonoscopy or a colon cancer screening. Where does somebody go to get a cognoscopy? So 
right now it's st they're still fairly limited in the amount of people that have been trained in this approach but gray matters health is a precision brain clinic uh, we are in sarasota and jacksonville right now and we see people um, virtually as well around the world all right um, so, so we know that there's a a window that is open where people can actually find a way to get a cognoscopy. This is not something that's coming down the pike. It's actually available now. Correct. Cool. All right. I love, by the way, gray matters um, because you know this gray matter in the brain matters to me. And I'm more than a little gray when I'm not um, on camera. So <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Get out of that one, Jackie. So when it comes to step one, Get a get a get a test. Find out your baseline. Just know your numbers. Kind of you know the same basic thing that wellness practitioners have been saying for a really 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 long time. You kind of parallel what entrepreneurs are saying now, which is you have to measure it. You have to know your numbers. You have to know where you start. We're using a number system at the Teen Suicide Prevention Society with the know, like, and trust factor to help people understand how to get to know, like, and trust themselves better. Because if you measure it, you can then improve it. So they get a cognoscopy. Now they've got a baseline. They can measure. They've been measured. They can then improve. What's next? It depends on what we find. Uh, so there may be some people with very significant risk factors, the very commonly high blood sugar, uh, cardiovascular risk factors are found. And these are things that if found early, you have, I would say, a lot more wiggle room to adjust your lifestyle and uh, do that over time in a, in a sort of a, a gentler fashion than somebody, say, who we find has severe coronary artery disease and we've got to upend the entire lifestyle. Now um, that's a lot more intensive program. Okay. So when you talked about this long window of opportunity, what I'm hearing and I'm not, you know, an astrophysicist or any of this, but what it sounds like is that if you're further away from the actual event, in this case, Alzheimer's, you only have to course correct a little but if you're close to it, you may have to course correct a lot. That's exactly right. Oh, cool. All right. So I'm, I'm following. I like this. But you made this, it, what sounds like a correlation that the risk factors, elevated blood sugar, which is a risk factor of other diseases and coronary heart things, the risk factor, of course, of a heart attack or a heart event. Um, those are related to Alzheimer's? Absolutely. Uh, the... There's a, it's important to, to know this. If you look at dementia patients, uh, over 50% of them have multi, uh, multimodal diagnoses. So more than half. And we know this from the aging study where they did autopsy analysis of Alzheimer's patients and found that uh, I believe it was 54% of patients had two different processes going in the, in, on in the brain. And the majority of those were vascular injuries. So when we talk about coronary artery disease, it's not specific to the heart. It's a vascular disease that when the vascular system um, is distributed throughout the body. So it affects your brain, it affects your kidneys and, and everything. 
Okay, so I didn't catch this in any of the things I've looked at before. This is really kind of fascinating. There are clues systemically in and around the body, not just where you might look for a cognitive test. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So let's take and stick with one scenario for a moment. And, and we'll, I, I think we're going to want to do two. And I we've got plenty of time for this. So here we go. Scenario one. I got kids that are on the high side of 40. So one of my kids decides to take a cognoscopy and they'll do a cognoscopy or whatever it is. The language escapes me. They come back and they're like, eh, middle of the road, nothing dramatic. What would be their next step? So we would say fantastic. And you can follow back up on an annual basis, similar that you that you would if you were, you know, an annual physical type thing, checking in. Have any symptoms developed? Are there been any changes in lifestyle or any changes in in life, right? Stress or sleep. These are big other uh, pillars, brain health. Um, and that may not be a full delve into um uh, cognitive health, like the cognoscopy, but you may decide, you know what, I want to repeat the neurocognitive testing, the online testing that we did um, just to track my numbers. Is my memory still as sharp? Uh, is my uh, processing speed still as sharp? These types of things. There we go. All right. Well, I love that. Um, I'm a stress management consultant for the last three, almost four decades. So this is right in where I love to play. Stress and sleep, double checking what's changed. You know, if somebody automat- uh, somebody suddenly becomes the caregiver of a grandchild, everything's off the table because stress and sleep, both one goes up, the other goes down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So now let's take another scenario. Someone's 65. They have a cognoscopy. And they find out that, you know, they're not processing quite as quickly as they used to. Mm, what would be typical that you would find going on? Just, I know we're talking typical in a wide spectrum, but let's create a case study. So that's great. Uh, I love the way you say that there's a wide spectrum. And so we subtype uh, the processes into five major subtypes. Okay. So you have inflammatory processes, you have uh, glycotoxic process, uh, pro, um, processes such as you know high blood sugar, insulin resistance. You have uh, trophic factors, which are the nutritive support for the brain. This would be like the analogy that I can best use is the soil that supports your garden. Do you have enough hormonal um, support for the brain, certain vitamins and nutrients? Is that there? And then you have, I mentioned vascular, there's trauma, and then there's a big one that's a little trickier to pin down. And I think this is um, much bigger than previously appreciated, which is toxicity. I'm hearing a lot about things that might fall into that toxicity bucket. Mm -hmm. So at age 65, what... Like I said, we'll keep a case study. All right. So this person has come in. They've got, they're above on the inflammation. They're below on the glyco. They're okay on the nutrient. They don't have any real vascular trauma, um, but their toxicity is wonky. Like you said, it's hard to pin down. 
but it's just like sending some some warning signals. What would they be doing that? Sure. So we always have to find the root cause and then eliminate the root cause. And then we use the body's natural detoxification processes to eliminate those toxins. And so to identify that, we're looking at symptoms. We do a, a pretty big symptom questionnaire that's looking for perhaps neurological symptoms, vertigo, headaches, mental fatigue, these types of things. We can take a look at the blood work and there may be certain signals that aren't proof, but they're little red flags that say, hey, maybe we should look here. You know, the bone marrow is kind of suppressed. Your, all your blood counts are on the low normal. Your zinc level is suppressed. Your triglycerides are really, really low. Uh, these are, if you combine all of those, that's sort of a pattern recognition that um, people have learned over the years that can indicate possible toxicity. So then with the history, you can look at, look for things like mercury. We can look for things like mold. We can look for environmental toxins. And we often do that through testing certain, um, you know, body fluids or hair and various different ways that you can try to measure that. Got it. All right. So I love the fact that there are five sort of areas that you look at and I'm, um, I'm unpacking the, the medical language in my head going, okay, multimodal, meaning you got more than one thing going wrong in your body at the same time. Did mm. I get it? That's exactly right. It's not <laughs> so simple as one little thing. There's one common denominator and all Alzheimer's patients are the same. You know, that type of thinking is just not going to get us anywhere. Got it. All right. So looking at, the different areas of inflammation. Um, I have my own theories about the stress and inflammation and autoimmune disorders connection with stress management. So I, I do lots of fun stories around that because I think it's a big overlooked component. Mm-hmm. You talked about sugar and you know the sad standard American diet certainly leads most people or many people to having those issues at some point in their life. When you talked about the nutritive support of the brain, I was thinking, you know, eat your fruits and vegetables and mind your proteins. And you came back with hormones. Tell me a little bit about how hormones um, provide nutrients to the brain. I'm just going to pause everybody. I know I was going through all five, but we're taking a pause. Okay. How do hormones help put nutrients in the brain? Hormones are very important for sort of a structural base. For example, if you look at testosterone, it's very helpful to maintain synaptic connections in the brain. So if somebody's testosterone production is suppressed uh, below physiologic levels, the synapses do not have all the tools they need to maintain uh, those connections. Synapses are the connections between neurons in the brain. That's the ability for thoughts to occur as these electrical impulses are sent neuron to neuron throughout the brain. Um, estrogen, extremely important for women. If you look at the sudden removal of estrogen, for example, in a woman who's had a oophorectomy, uh, when they remove the ovaries surgically, if you don't supply replacement hormone, that woman has nearly a double, a twofold increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. And that is from Mayo Clinic observational data. And because there is a feedback loop, when you remove estrogen, suddenly the brain sort of goes into 
what seems to be a defense mechanism uh, pruning back, uh, batten down the hatches, so to speak, and the neurons start to die off and trim sort of to protect core functions, it seems. Uh, so we so we see that. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like there sh- could be maybe a warning label put on any kind of surgery that would remove a woman's ovary so that she would know that this doubles her risk of Alzheimer's? Yeah. I, think- I, I don't think that's a disclaimer that many women are given. That's true. And, you know, this is the, the people would probably say, well, this is observational data from, you know, just it's not been proven, you know, correlation does not prove causation. Um, and there's truth to that. But when you combine that with the known biological mechanisms of action, uh, I, I don't believe it's wise to wait for that study to be done because nobody's really been interested to do that study. So, when you combine that observation, just mm-hmm. a simple observation, a woman that's had her ovaries removed and doesn't receive uh, hormone replacement has nearly a twofold risk of Alzheimer's over the course of her life. And when we look at why, why would that be, it focuses around a central um, signaling protein in the brain called amyloid precursor protein. And this gets pretty uh-huh. technical, but it is a protein on the membrane of our neurons that sort of acts as a, a, um, a gateway. So it's, it's known as an integrative switch. So it collects information from multiple factors and decides perhaps things are good and we're going to maintain a strong, healthy brain, or perhaps there's a lot of problems, we're under threat. So we're going to switch and we're going to set off a series of, of cascading events that says we need to prune back preserve core functions and we lose neurons and lose synapses. And for, and for women, that estrogen is an extremely important uh, factor in that integrative switch, which way it will be cleaved. This is interesting because we've tapped into the fear factor. It sounds like the brain is reacting to a switch that says we're under attack is what your language you you. So, so the brain in fear of whatever is happening biochemically starts to shut itself down, starts to shed the non-essential systems. Yes. And that's my language because that's how I understand what seems to be going on. I don't understand any other explanation of why the brain would do this. Well, I'm a big believer that our brains on stress, even on neutral are just nowhere near as functional as our brain on positive. And I think That's, I mentioned before we started that the name of the podcast, Your Brain on Positive, was inspired by a TEDx talk by Harvard professor Sean Aker. He's known as the happiness professor. And he said in his TEDx talk that your brain on positive is 31% more productive than your brain on negative, neutral, or stressed. And I think that's so misunderstood. People think if they can just calm down and get to neutral, that they'll be good. But that's not health. That's not your best. Your best is when you can get your brain with all of its synapses firing. So I had no clue there was this big hormonal connection. It's a piece of the puzzle. And for some people, more of a piece of the puzzle and some people less of a piece of the puzzle. 
but it's certainly a piece of the puzzle. And I, I wholly agree with what you're saying. Stress has been shown many, many times. I mean, there's these studies looking at mothers in World War II uh, that caring for babies in these horrific circumstances, uh, their hippocampal parts of their brain are shrunk. So they've lost that part of the brain that encodes memories and is so important for our short-term memory. And that's a direct effect of chronic stress, high cortisol levels. High cortisol levels are a direct effect of chronic stress. I absolutely believe that. And they are a huge trigger for inflammation, for digestive disorders, for the laundry list. But I'm going to come back to your list. Okay, so we touched a little bit on inflammation, the glyco connection, the, the, the sugar connection, the nutrients and stuff. Then when you got into vascular, and you're right. My thought about coronary heart disease had to, coronary disease had to do with the heart. And that's what my family has going on. You know, we have a family history of coronary events, but they've always been related to the heart. You're talking about the whole venous system, the whole veins and arteries throughout the whole body. And that now there's this connection of if you've got something going on in your veins, you might have something going on in your brain. Yes. So just a quick uh, finer point, technical point. Arteries feed the organs. So they take blood from the heart out to the organs. Those are really the vessels we're concerned about with atherosclerosis, the blockages of these arteries or the dysfunction of these arteries. The veins return blood. They're, they're important. Uh, they take sort of deoxygenated blood, blood containing waste products back to the heart and lungs. Okay. So the arteries are the, the really big player here and it is a systemic issue. So to illustrate this point, a lot of people don't know this, but back pain is actually one of the first uh, indicators can be one of the first indicators that you have vascular disease. And that's because degenerative disc disease. And I'm just shocked at how many even um, neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons operating on the spine don't really understand this. But the small little arteries coming off the aorta, which is the big artery about as big as your thumb coming down the middle of your body, it feeds the spine with tiny little arteries level by level that come off. And at these uh, junction where the artery branches off, there's a lot of turbulence. And so over our life, that turbulence can create the, the blockages in these arteries, okay, where blood gets, blood flow gets limited to the spine. And so uh, vascular surgeons are aware of this. When you do a aortic operation, you open the aorta and you can see the back of the aorta, there's these pinhole arteries coming off in a very specified pattern. Now, people with atherosclerosis, you see those arteries occluded. And I remember as a oh. as an early medical student and resident thinking, how is the spine getting any blood? I mean, these arteries are completely blocked. And it turns out that it doesn't. And so there's this correlation with atherosclerosis of those tiny little spinal arteries due to, due to the sheer turbulence from high flow velocity down the aorta into these small little vessels with degenerative disc disease. So people have weakened tissues, they lift up something heavy and they think, oh, it's just because I lifted something heavy that I popped my disc, but it can be a sign that actually those uh, vessels are compromised. 
And then the next size arteries are the arteries that lead to the genitalia and then the heart. So we see in vascular clinics, a lot of attention is paid to these other areas as warning signs that there could be heart disease. The brain is highly sensitive to loss of blood flow because it is a, it is a energy hog. It takes 30% of our glucose. It takes a massive amount of our blood supply. I think it's 15% of our blood supply. Don't quote me on that. And when those blood vessels start to become choked off, the brain really starts to struggle. And we see this very commonly on MRIs where you see these little white spots on, on an, an MRI in the, what's called the white matter. And radiologists will call this small vessel ischemic disease. And it's so common that it's generally ignored by practitioners. Uh, but more and more, the studies will, and it's now out. I mean, there are studies that correlate these white spots with progressive loss of cognitive function. So when, when we see these white spots, we think as a clinician, okay, there's not been a big stroke. That's just a chronic process. I don't have anything in my algorithm for that. So it's generally ignored as a way a lot of people think about this in medicine. But we're saying you shouldn't be ignoring that. That is a sign of vascular injury most of the time. There are some other things that can cause those lesions on your MRI. Um, but when the blood supply starts getting choked off to the brain and those neurons aren't um, getting enough blood, they start to uh, deteriorate. And you see that on the MRI. So that's small vessel disease. And it's associated with progressive loss of brain function over time. And then, of course, there's the big problems where you have a blood clot that obstructs an artery and kills a bunch of tissue, and you lose the function of that tissue. Those are strokes, TIAs. Yeah. And so that, that's vascular. The connection between it all is something that I'm starting to piece out into my head. So if it is all connected, and we touched a little bit on the toxicity, which was the fifth one, if it's all connected, so it's not all nurture, but certainly toxicity is mostly the environment that we're in, and it's not all nature, it's not just our genes, even though there's been a lot of talk about that one gene that's, a, you know, oh, if you have this, you're in trouble. I've got a friend going through clinical trials because they have that one gene. They don't have any other symptoms, but now they're um, volunteering to test some new drugs out. And I'm like, wow, there's a lot of fear around the potential of our losing our cognitive function, losing our independence. That's driving people to make decisions that they don't know they have other options, I think. That's why I was so excited when our mutual friend, Michael Jones, said, hey, why don't you interview Dr. Will? And I'm like, well, absolutely. Let's have a conversation about this, because in a very short period of time, you've laid out a very, very different um, perspective on what is really not very well understood. So lifestyle, diet, stress management, and exercise are the four things that we know will improve all of those areas. And it's so very, very simple. If there was one place people could go that you would say was reputable, that they could just say, hey, if you want to be healthy or for the rest of your life, including your brain, 
you know, these are the four things, lifestyle, diet, stress management, and exercise. And, and these are places you can go. Or is that the problem? There are so many places people can go for this information. They get confused and a confused mind doesn't make a decision or take an action. What would be better than them just Googling and going out and finding things randomly? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, I think there's a lot of people doing very good work in this area. I can speak for our clinic. We we feel that ha having a primary care approach is extremely important because as you've alluded to with uh, stress and knowing the patient on a personal level is extremely important. You have to understand all of these, what people call social determinants of health. You know, if they're uh, homeless and living under a bridge, it's going to change the, your conversation uh, as if, and let, you know, as opposed to somebody that's got disposable income. So having that primary care understanding, we feel is incredibly important. It also prevents this sort of uh, siloed approach to healthcare that we see as problematic, where everybody is a uh, hyper specialist in their area, but they're not making these connections systemically. Uh, so I think that somebody with a, a general approach like that is uh, important. And then somebody that understands these things that has been trained in these areas, uh, I think we call it lifestyle medicine, functional medicine, that goes a long way. Specifically with brain health, it is extremely complicated. And there are so many different nuances. And I think you can come at, you can come to that from many different, different pathways, okay? But uh, as far as I'm not aware of anybody that is comprehensively doing it, an approach like this, uh, like we are. So the one of the big things for me is that you all are myth busting, not just Alzheimer's, but the traditional approach to medicine. And I loved how you expressed it, that it's a name it, blame it, tame it approach. And while we have a lot of tools at our disposal now to tame the symptoms of illness and disease, prevention is still not the primary conversation. And I would love to help you all change that. That's why I was so excited that you could join me here today, because I believe in pure prevention and you have a path laid out that people can follow. So if you're under 45, hey, start paying attention to your lifestyle, your diet, your stress management, and your exercise. And if you're 45 or over, start hunting around. You might be time to get a cognoscopy. Cognoscopy? I'll let you pronounce it. <laughs> cognoscopy. Thank you. It takes a little bit. And thank you for being willing to come on the show and to share this story with us. I have one quick question for you. Why is this so important to you that you've devoted a lot of your professional life to it? Well, I think that there is nothing more heartbreaking to see families struggle with uh, loved ones going through Alzheimer's disease. And it's such a vacuum right now in the health system. I mean, my perspective as a primary care doctor was it was terrible. I had, I knew people were showing signs of cognitive decline and I had nothing to offer them of any meaningful substance. 
So I felt the best thing was to ignore it because otherwise it, everything ends up being sort of punitive to that patient. And to, to have to be helpless and stand by idly watching people uh, steadily decline was very terrible. And then you combine that with the personal toll on people, you know, uh, because when you have an Alzheimer's patient and their caretaker, you really have two patients in the room. So it's just heartbreaking to watch a spouse in tears, watching their loved one dissipate and, and coming to the point where they don't recognize them. It's a terrible thing. I, my partner, Mark, went through it with his mom. And he remembers very clearly the day that she stopped recognizing him. But you hit upon something that I want to highlight. You're feeling helpless as a physician. This wasn't what you became a doctor for, to stand by and helplessly watch someone decline and watch the whole family potentially implode. It's not why you got into medicine. And yet so many people in the medical profession are facing this extreme frustration on so many fronts. I just want to highlight you. I want to tell everyone who's in the medical field to it follow the path. If you're frustrated with what's currently available, consider what else is possible. Because I feel like that's what you've done and the rest of us will benefit. So thank you, Dr. Well, for coming on the show. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Hang on, everyone. The ride always gets more interesting from here. Thank you for turning on and turning up your positivity. We know that positivity is easier to maintain in a community, so we have one. Join our community on Facebook, Your Brain on Positive. If you've had an aha from the show, please head over to the community and share it. We love to celebrate wins.